the first time I ever saw you perform, I don't know, I've never talked about this, but it was probably 2010 or 11, and it was in Austin at South by Southwest. And I think you know this, I played in bands for years, and so my band was playing at South by Southwest. And you were playing the night before us. I remember watching you, and it was much darker than what you became. I don't know, was there a difference in the style when you first started out and to when you kind of broke nationally? I'm not sure what songs or, you know, songs or song you heard in, in Austin. It could have been a darker set for sure. Look, this is just my impression from seeing you a snippet of you in 2011. <laughs> so I may have it all wrong. But You're like that, that dive bar in Austin. Yeah, exactly. You're darker. <laughs> so with that depression music. <laughs> Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Nordy Pod. I'm Pete Nordstrom, president of Nordstrom and your host for this podcast. Join me as I take you on an honest, authentic journey through our company and introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life, one episode at a time. In this episode, I'm excited to share my conversation with local Seattle Grammy award-winning rap artist, Ben Haggerty, undoubtedly better known by his stage name, Macklemore. Inspired by the provocative lyrics of the influential hip-hop group N.W.A., an adolescent Ben Haggerty immediately fell in love with the genre and soon became laser-focused on a career as a rap artist. Under the alias Macklemore, he slowly gained a loyal following through an emerging underground Seattle hip-hop scene and exposure through the local independent radio station KEXP. In collaboration with friend and producer Ryan Lewis, Ben's career reached an entirely new level after the release of their massively successful album, The Heist. Ushered by the viral music video for their hit song, Thrift Shop, and assisted by alt-radio DJs across the U.S., Macklemore and Lewis launched to the top of the Billboard charts and won Grammy Awards for Best New Artist, Best Rap Album, Best Rap Song, and Best Rap Performance. Ben has only continued to grow and collaborate with some of the best artists in the business, expressing gratitude for his platform to speak about important issues and opportunities to make a positive impact on his community. In our conversation, Ben talks about the intensity of immediate fame, the absolute joy of performing, and the inherent entrepreneurial spirit responsible for his success. And on a surprisingly related tangent, you golfers out there can thank him for creating a whole new aesthetic to brandish out there on the green. So let's get into it. All right, so it's really a privilege for me to be able to talk to Ben Haggerty today. You may know him better as Macklemore. Do, do you want me to refer to you as Ben or Macklemore? I yeah, mean, ben, is, ben is great. Okay. I thought that was going to be the case, but I didn't know if they oh, no, we got to stay in character here. This is how we're doing <laughs> no. this. And th- you may be the most famous person I've ever had on the Nordy Pod. So, Ben, thanks so much for doing this this morning. Pete, thank you for having me. So, you know, we know each other a little bit, you know, because he's a Seattle guy. Now he runs probably in a little bit different circles than I do. But the connection point there is my niece. And so... 
Ben's wife grew up next door to my niece and they've known each other forever. And as such, it's given me the opportunity to be around you a little bit and get to know you, whether it was like, you know, at Alex's wedding or I mean, any events like that. So it's been fun for me to get to know you a little bit. And I just I want to tell you, I'm I'm just so impressed by your career and everything that you accomplish. It's it's really amazing. And, I you know, it obviously transcends just a Seattle thing. I mean, you've had this just enormous success. So I just want to start off by saying congratulations to you. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. That's that means a lot. And yeah, it's it's been great to get to know you, you know, throughout the various events over the years and obviously have massive respect for you and and love for Alex and the whole fam. So it goes both ways. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. So as I was thinking about the kind of stuff that maybe we could talk about here today, I mean, the first thing that really strikes me is that you were able to carve out a place in the music industry and have enormous success kind of against all odds. Because if you think about rap or hip hop, I mean, it almost all comes out of like New York, L.A. or Atlanta. And so here you are, this guy in Seattle. I'm just kind of curious, you know, how you got your start thinking about music as something that you wanted to pursue. So. Tell me about what it was like growing up and when this became part of what your identity is. Well, I think early on, you know, I started rapping when I was about 15 and I took it seriously. You know, I I have an addictive personality. I want to be good at whatever I'm doing. I'm competitive. And particularly at the time, it was a very different moment in Internet culture. Like this is the very beginning of the Internet kind of. And there was no instant feedback. There was no critic. There was no comment section. There was really, you know, just the people that came to your show. So like in that very transformative period, I believe that I was a lot better than I actually was. (laughs) If there was internet, you know, TikTok would be like, oh, this guy's trash. And I would get my feelings hurt and I would have never rapped again. But I actually had no one to tell me that. So um, I kept going. But yeah, that, that kind of time being 15 years old and first starting to rap, that became my identity kind of from the very beginning. It was like I, I'd always wanted to be on stage. I'd always wanted to have an outlet for creativity, make music. And um, yeah, it just kind of like I was I became an artist. So was your orientation to it about music specifically or was it more about the rap culture and all that stuff? You know, for me. It was my next door neighbor. I was six years old. He was maybe 11 and he played me NWA. And when you were six. That, yeah, I think I was seven. <laughs> that must have made seven. an impression. And, um, and I immediately was just like, what is this? What is like, this is crazy. They're saying, fuck the police. Like, what is going, you know, like (laughs) what is going on? But I fell in love with it and I fell in love with with rap music. And um, that never left for me. So you got exposed to that through a neighbor because, again, it wasn't like Seattle was a hotbed of rap. No, no. I mean, not at all. And when I first was 15 years old, it was just kind of like the community of people that were in the scene that were making art. That was the community in Seattle. And slowly over time, fans emerged and the scene was an underground scene. It wasn't known to the rest of the world. It wasn't known to the rest of America that we had something here that was special. So you're playing these shows here. How did you get enough critical mass where it created a an opportunity for you to do something more than just 
you know, like a local guy. I mean, I think it happened slowly. It was individual songs and things just spreading. And I think people love to share music inherently. We as a culture, like when we find something good that no one else knows about, we want to share that. And now our sharing isn't as much hand to hand. It's what we're given on playlists. It's kind of already pre-programmed. It's it's what the algorithm is feeding us. That's the other side of sharing now. Whereas like 13, 14 years ago, there was a real pride of being like, look at this music that I discovered. And that's how, you know, we started to pop off was fans, people giving it to others. Do you remember the first time you heard yourself on the radio? Yeah, I was in LA. We were in a van, like a 12 person passenger white van. And I don't know what we were doing, but we were driving and Thrift Shop came on the radio and it was just like, so it was, I'm surprised it wasn't KXP or something that happened in Seattle, but that was more. Yeah. I mean, KXP for sure. I I'm thinking like national, like mainstream radio, uh, KXP. I don't remember the first time I heard myself on KXP, but it was definitely KXP. Yeah. I want to talk about that a little bit because KXP is such an influential station around here, such a launching pad for people. And I noticed just recently I was looking at stuff with you online. I said, you, I mean, you performed there just even a few months ago and, you know, guys at your level don't always perform like at a radio station like KXP. So can you talk a little bit about how that's been instrumental in in getting you launched? Yeah, I mean, KXP, they just were very pivotal in terms of giving even the Sunday night show. Right. The fact that we had a hip hop show on the radio in Seattle, like that was really big. That was absolutely the first place that played me. That was a big part of the, the driving force behind some of that pivotal push of getting stuff out there. And I just, I was listening the other day, uh, you know, I have a truck and I got in the truck. So my Bluetooth wasn't connected and KXP was on and it was snowing and we were rolling around shooting a music video. And I was just listening to, to my guy, Lace Cadence on there and vitamin D Seattle legends in terms of being in the hip hop scene. And it's so dope that, you know, here we are like entering our forties coming up and, you know, we've been making music in the city for so long and artists have a platform to go DJ at the radio station that gets heard around the world. Yeah. We have that right here in our backyard special. Yeah. So your first full length was language of my world in what was that? Oh, five. Is that right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And at that time, this is something you put out on your own. Did that happen? Did did something happen with that record? Like, oh, okay, now something's really happening. Or, I mean, was it kind of like any other local bands? I'm I'm gonna scrape it together. I'm gonna put a record out and we're gonna see what happens. Like, what what happened around that time? What happened around? I was in college, and what happened around that time was I made a song called "Welcome to MySpace," and Tom, the guy that started MySpace, <laughs> yeah, heard the song and blasted it out in a bulletin or whatever it was called on MySpace. So that was a moment of like, oh, wow. You know, like quickly I had like, you know, 10,000 more fans, which was, you know, 99% more than what I had before. (laughs) And that was one of those moments where like, oh, I can see how this happens or is this going to happen? Is it, it's not really happening, but like I got enough of a taste of like, okay, that's that feeling when something catches on. But no, I think that it was mostly local shows. It was Bumper Shoot. It was yeah. Capitol Hill Block Party. It was, you know, Vera Project. Yep. And what it did 
create for me was an income stream via those shows and via selling the CDs and any merch. It created an income stream that I was able to like barely live off. And that was the first time that I was like, okay, I can actually pay rent and live off of the art. So when the heist came out, you know, it has all the big hits on it, you know, thrift shop and can't hold us and same love. I mean, it's just as a fully formed, full blown, like almost like a greatest hits record. Like how long did you work on that? And did you know when you were making it, like, okay, this, this thing is going to be big. Cause I mean, those songs are undeniable. No, we did not know at all. And, you know, we built up to, to the heist and we were, we had been working on it for, you know, a couple years and no, I had no clue that my music would ever be played on the radio. Anything that came after the heist, I, I could have never seen coming. I think what it was, was a devoted group of people that really believed in the art we cultivated. It was like a mom and pop homegrown organic fan base. And so when we came out, I think that we shocked a lot of people with, you know, we sold like 78 or 79,000 our first week of the heist. Well, how did you even get like, did at that point, did you have radio promotion, that stuff? I mean, for you to sell that many copies means you're not just selling it in Seattle. I mean, there's something happening out there. So when that, yeah, when yeah. that record dropped, did you have the infrastructure to be able to get that played across the country? No, no, not at all. I mean, we had and have distribution through ADA. And ADA is an independent subsidiary of Warner Brothers. Right. So ADA basically gets your, you know, is the distribution that gets it into Best Buy, into Target, into independent spots. So we didn't have access to a radio department. That wasn't part of the deal. But the heist came out and DJs on alternative radio stations started to organically play thrift shop. And it became enough of a thing. And then simultaneously, you have a music video that's getting like a million views a day with Thrift Shop happening at the same time. So what came first? I mean, did you, did you do that video before it was a hit? Yeah. Yeah, we did. So you, sure. so you had so a feeling this is this song's going to be something. So I'm going to invest in it. I'm going to do a video. I'm going to work against this song. Did you have that idea? You know, I always I thought of the concept of Thrift Shop in mm-hmm. 2008. And, you know, the song came out in 2000. 12. Right. I had had the concept. I knew that the concept was entertaining to me because it was like my life. And, you know, thrifting has always been a part of what I do. But um, a very small percentage of the population I thought would be able to relate to a record about secondhand clothing. And um, <laughs> you were wrong. Never it was it. it was huge. I, I was very wrong. <laughs> yeah, it just it caught on. So slowly we got presented with the idea. Warner came in as the big brother came in and we're like, yo, we can work this thing to radio if you hire us. You know, it's already moving. We can take this to the next level. And my manager called me and I pick up and he tells me if this thing goes at radio, your life will be changed forever. Now it might not go and then everything will stay the same. <laughs> but if you want to roll the dice and it, and it also costs money, you know, so it's, I, I don't know, it was $200,000 or something like that to give this full like radio so the, campaign. They gave approach. you like an advance and then you had to no, re- they they recoup no, against that or how did it work? No, we, we paid it. Oh, you paid it we flat paid it out. Wow. Yeah. That's a again, lot of money. Signed, yeah, it was. 
but you know, we, we had just put out the album and we we're starting to get, you know, real money for, for shows. But yeah, he, he said, this will change your life. If you want to do it, who knows what's going to happen, but you, you can't go back from this point if it goes. And I was like, let's roll the dice. Let's spend the money and, and shoot for it. And sure enough, you know, it went number one in the world. So how long did that take between when they say, okay, we're going to push this thing at radio till it became number one? I want to say that conversation in Wisconsin happened in the early fall. And I don't think it went number one till January. That means a lot happened in a handful of months for you. I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. A, a lot happened in a handful of months. I mean, we had a viral music video. But, you know, it looks like the production of that video it was good. It wasn't like some kind of cheap happy hands at home thing. I mean, you you had my niece, Alex, as some kind of stylist in that thing. I love watching that video and seeing her in the background, like dancing and in the shopping cart and stuff. It is pretty funny for me to see that. Because again, at that time, did anyone think it was going to be this huge thing? Or was it? I mean, I don't know. No. What was it? What was no. the spirit like when you made that thing? I mean, like everything that we do, it is homegrown. We had a small team and, you know, I remember like renting the U-Haul myself, you know, Craigslisting for extras, you know, just. How much did it cost to make that video? It was less than $10,000. I want to say it was five, but it was very cheap because we, we had to cut all the corners. Like we didn't have money to burn, like we're doing it ourselves and we're aware of every cost. Yeah. When you're on a label, they're like, we'll take care of right. it. Like we'll. We set up the catering like, you know, we have this and craft and all that. And then all of a sudden, you know, you see that your bill is two hundred thousand dollars and you're like, damn, for that. <laughs> and we've always just done it ourselves. So, I mean, I, the question that comes to mind is like, how did that make you feel in that moment? I mean, to the point, you know, you've been working at this for a while. It was part of your identity is what you aspired to do. But it had to in so many ways exceed even kind of your wildest dreams. I mean, all of a sudden, it's just a full-on thing that's happening. I can only imagine the impact that must have had on you, but can you talk a little bit about what that time was like in your life, that year or so when that record is out and it was just huge everywhere? It was a very intense time period. It was so exciting on so many levels. You know, to, to watch the thing that you've worked on your entire life finally get discovered by the world. That's a very powerful moment. And yet it's coupled with a complete lack of sleep, a lack of self-care. Because what had happened was we booked all of these college shows before anything took off. So we had a entire spring full of like a college tour. And, you know, by the time January rolls around, we're some of the biggest artists in the world. And yet we're doing these like small liberal arts colleges, like along the East Coast and <laughs> random tiny schools and some that weren't tiny, but a full college tour. Yet now you're throwing in like you have to get to the VMAs and now you have to do this show and this private and that we were literally ping ponging all over the country. And this isn't even taking into account any of the international travel, but it led to pure insanity. Like how many nights did you spend at home that first year of that record? Oh, none. Like none. So few. So few. Trisha and I, we were we were out. We did not come home. And you when it starts to happen, you don't know how long you you're gonna have it for. So you're just like, we have to say yes to all of this at the beginning. There's no no. It's like, well, yeah, let's take it. 
another show came in we can get there let's take it yeah and i remember at that time this would have been probably 13 but you ended up doing that benefit that my wife and i host for seattle children's hospital i mean you were on the road i remember you came in you said okay i will do it which was super generous of you by the way i mean i can never thank you enough for that it was really an amazing thing but i mean you guys literally if i recall came in off the road came straight to the show box in seattle came in and did like a handful of songs. And at the time, we didn't even really announce it. It was kind of a surprise and delight. And people lost their freaking mind because, I mean, you were like literally the biggest act in the world that moment. And you're playing in front of a thousand people. And it was such a joyful thing to see. I mean, and you really brought it too. It's like, okay, I mean, he's doing this as a favor. This is really nice. It's a charity show. But I remember feeling super impressed. Like, even though I could tell you guys were tired, like you... You totally did it and totally brought it. And it was awesome. Oh, it's always good to hear. Yeah. In those situations, when you're sleep deprived, you know, when, you know, it's a small group or private or like anything like that, those are the moments that really challenge you as a performer. It's not the like 10,000, you know, cap arena, it's sold out. Like that's a different thing. What is challenging is going and performing in front of like, 1500 people that are there to eat dinner and at some gala, like, how do you perform in front of that type of crowd? I I mean, I, it's not my favorite type of performance by any means, but I enjoy it because that is what sharpens the sword. That's like, can I talk to like, can I talk to all groups of people? Can I bring people together as a master of ceremonies? And some of those shows end up being my favorite ones. Like we did a, a private in Denver a couple months ago. And I was just like, dude, that was like maybe my favorite show of this whole tour. We're we're out with Imagine Dragons playing in front of like, you know, 35,000 people. And I was like, there was something about that, like the intimacy that I just love. There's magic there. Well, you know, I saw a recent thing that you have on YouTube and it was talking about performing. And it was it was on that Imagine Dragons tour. And one thing that I really love that you said is before the show, we get to do this. We don't have to do this, Mm -hmm. but we get to do it. I mean, to see you up on stage and doing your thing, you know, whether it's in front of 35,000 people or a thousand, I I do get that sense that that switch flips on for you about performing. A lot of artists get to that point like, oh, I don't really want to tour. I'm really more of a producer. You know, I'm a studio guy, but it seems like you get so much energy from the touring part of it, the live performance part. Yeah, it's what I'm the best at. That's my thing. I have honed that part of my craft in a way that it's made me who I am is putting on the show that I can, that I put on and how I feed off of the crowd, how the crowd feeds off me, that very personal relationship, knowing that there's power with live music and that that vibration of whoever is in the room is real. You know, that energy that's exchanged is real. And I give it a hundred percent every time i i love it i always compete i take it very seriously i love the minute details that go into a performance i love the choreo i love the timing the comedic timing of the in-betweens and i love the whole thing and i think what you know i just got knee surgery not long ago and my knees definitely not back to a hundred and you know inevitably like the body breaks down. I've gone hard for a lot of years yeah. and that's the reality that I'm having to face now. It's like, dude, like you've been crowd walking, surfing, jumping, you know, diving, 
beating up your body, twisting, turning for a long time. And I feel that shit for sure. Yeah. And, you know, and I don't know if people know this about you, but you're, you're a family guy, too, and you got kids. And, and I know you take those responsibilities seriously. Like, so how does that factor in when you're thinking about, you know, doing your thing and really, you know, nurturing your career with that live performance being the catalyst for you? But it means you have to be away from home, too. Like, so how do you think about balancing your life, your personal life? It's challenging. Like, do you bring the kids out on the road with you some? We have three kids now, and three has made it definitely more challenging to (laughs) travel. When, you know, my eldest Sloan, she was out on the road with us for the first two and a half, three years of her life. We were in Europe on tour. She was there. We were walking around cities. But yeah, you start to have more kids. You're like, this is not sustainable. This is insanity. But that being said, like, we're we're talking about in between a, a couple of European festival shows this summer, them coming out for a week, taking some time. I, I think in general, the balancing is hard because I want to do great work in all ways. I want to be a great dad. Like I want to kill it. I want to bond with my kids, have a special connection. I want to create those core memories that shape who they are. Like I want to be there with them through their journey of life simultaneously on the other side, I want to make great art. I want to tour, you know, you're trying to balance all of these different things and do them all well. And there's just not enough hours in the day. Yeah. It's easy to get in a season of like, you know, career, making sure this buggy boys line comes out at the right time. This music video, all of a sudden it's like, how am I connecting? That's when I always mess up is when I forget that piece that I need to be connecting or this does not work. Yeah. I can only imagine. So if you're comfortable talking about this, I'd like to talk a little bit about the whole addiction and recovery part of your life. Absolutely. So, I mean, okay, this has been part of your life for a while and and before you were famous and everything. And what happens when then all of a sudden it's money and it's attention and it's the pressure and the stress and all that. And you're a person that's living through the day to day struggles of addiction recovery. What, What was that like for you? Yeah, I mean, shortly after everything really went crazy, I relapsed and went back into active addiction. So that was maybe um, 2013. I don't know, the years start to get a little blurry, but it was in, in 2013. And yeah, you know, it was a time of escaping. It was a time of like, of hiding, of not knowing what how to maneuver through like walking through an airport and seeing your picture on the cover of a Rolling Stone, having people just constantly bombard you, not being able to eat a meal, like getting written up about getting criticized, like all of these things that now are part of my life and happened really quickly. And I didn't know how to, to sit with them. I didn't know how to be still and to not become affected and and let that weigh down on my spirit. And also a a massive part of it was I stopped working the program because I was so busy. So I stopped doing my 12 step work. I stopped going to meetings. And when that happens in conjunction with like getting thrown a bunch of like haymakers from life, like I got hit and yeah, it was, it was a dark time because on one end it's like a celebration and crazy things are happening on another end. Like I'm, I'm hiding and I'm living a secret and I'm trying not to get caught. And whenever that's the case, there's, um, you know, a spiritual malady. There's something there that's not being filled. And were you able to hide it even from Trisha and stuff or? I mean, I, I would attempt to. 
Man, that can't be easy. It's not easy at all. A lot of anxiety has to go with that. A lot of pressure. Jeez. Yes. yes. <laughs> Was there ever a time it's like, man, this is slipping away. I could lose all this. I mean, you know, you got this great wife, family, you got this huge career and, you know, a lot of people that are depending on you and, you know, a whole organization and team of people. Was it ever like in danger, like of going away? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, if I die, this goes away. And then down the line, but let's start there. Like this disease leads to jails, institutions, and death. I have the disease. I've already tiptoed around death enough. Like I'm not promised another relapse, I'm not promised another trip back through the doors of recovery. So it's very serious. And um, yeah, a lot is compromised. And the, but the thing is the disease doesn't care about any of that. You know, the disease is in my head, like, you know, not thinking about all the people we employee or thinking about the music and how it affects people. It's like the disease is just completely self-centered on, I want to escape and any means to do that. Yeah. So the recovery part of it, was it just going back to what you knew, whether it was the 12 step program or what kind of got you then back on the track and able to deal with that? For me, it's always been, yes, the 12 step program, you know, going to meetings, being around others, getting right back in the middle of it, being of service, and um, and doing the work. And that has always quelled me wanting to go out and change the way that I feel. It's always worked. What, what doesn't work is when I forget and I start, you know, doing what I want to do, thinking that I'm in control. And if this would just go right at this, you know, all of a sudden I get back into like, I'm the playmaker when really I'm just a vessel and I forget that. So accountability is another big part of it. And Trisha being like, yo, tell your manager, you need to tell your parents, you need to go to a meeting right now. You need to tell your sponsor what just happened. You know, like she would just hold me to the fire and make sure that like I was actually getting back on track and not just falling and letting everything slip away. And um, it continues to amaze me the power of community, the power of sharing our truth in a group, the power of showing up for others and telling our story service. It's just, it's phenomenal. And I'm grateful to be a part of it. So is that whole approach help inform, you know, the community approach to have? Because I think of you as being really a great community guy. You're a great Seattle person. You're engaged and you show up in all kinds of ways, philanthropic and community things that are more selfless in nature. Is this all part of that? You know, when I think of service around recovery, I think of it around recovery specifically. I, I think of the philanthropic outlet is just being a, trying to be a good person, being like, I got extremely lucky. You know, the, the stars aligned for me to make art and end up here in this place with this platform. What are you going to do with it? Because I've realized that the money doesn't work. The shoes don't work. The cars don't work. None of these external things work to fill the void. So what can you do that's going to connect you to purpose, to community, to what really matters? And those are things that always come from helping other people. And yeah. it's like right there. It's the greatest secret. It's right there under our nose the entire time. And we, and we don't pay attention to it because we want, 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 we desire. We're thinking about us and we lose what's right in front of us, which is helping other people and deeper fulfillment. Yeah. So shift gears a little bit. I mean, one thing that's impressive to me, you know, and it follows really the arc of your career and everything that you've done is that you were forging your own path. 
you obviously had some kind of vision, but I mean, you had to bootstrap this whole thing. You, you're an entrepreneur. It just happens to be around you and the music and the, and on all that stuff. I, I'm, I'm just interested in, in how you view kind of that approach. I think that you have to be an entrepreneur to succeed. I think it has to be a part of your DNA. I think that there's a varying degree of how much, but no one is going to do this for you. And I think of my very first years in high school, making my first solo CD that came from me being like, okay, if I'm going to put out music, I have to be able to record. I can't afford a nice studio. I can't afford $50 an hour. So I have to buy my own equipment. And I saved up enough to buy my own equipment. And then, you know, one step at a time. And then it was like, I need a cover. I need to make a cover. Okay, I need to learn how to do graphic arts. Now I'm taking a graphic arts class in high school and I can design my own cover. That's how it was creatively. Like, okay, now we need to make a music video. How do we, what kind of camera do we need? This, all of these things, this entrepreneur spirit was like, embedded in everything that we did because we had to do it all. This was out of necessity. It was out of necessity. Who else is going to do that for you? How do you, you know, and you, you watch. So then there's certain people, you know, like if you're assigned to a label or whatever, and you take away a lot of those responsibilities and sometimes maybe a marketing team like nails your personality or you're built into something that, that really works and is sellable. But for the most part, the people that have, lasting careers in this industry are a part of their brand, their likeness, what makes them them. And I want to be in control of that. I want to have a say. I want to be able to weigh in in all facets. And I honestly, I'm going to do the best job. I'm going to do the best job because I care the most about what I'm creating. And it's my vision. So I want to bring other people in to support me. I want to bring other people in to contribute and do what they do best. But at the end of the day, I have to have the vision or else I can't trust somebody else to execute one. So is that a control thing or is that more of an authenticity thing? I, I, it, there's definitely control issues for sure. I, I would like to think that I am a, um, a good collaborator, but I also you know, know what's in my head. And, you know, sometimes like that has to get left on the on the chopping block. Like, I'm not right. I want people to come in and challenge me. Like we're doing a collaboration with Bogey Boys in another company. And, you know, we're writing the treatment last night or talking about the treatment. And Trisha came in, you know, because she's the best and we'll call bullshit quickly and was just like challenge the entire treatment that we've been going off of for the last like three weeks. that has been approved by this other company. And she was right. And we completely pivoted. You know, I need to work with people like that. that see a side that I might miss. Yeah. So you, you talk about the bogey boys thing. And that that's another thing that gives us a reason to be connected. So here you are, you're doing your career. It's really amazing. You, you decide you, you're into playing golf, but that's not enough. You decide you don't love right. the golf clothes available. She said, I'm going to create clothes for golf. Yeah, completely. Four years ago. I first started to play and I went into a pro, you know, cause I, I like, you know, play once, get the bug. I'm immediately like, yo, I need to get shoes. I need to get some pants. I need to get some polos. Like I have to look the part. And I went to a sporting goods store and was so disappointed with what was there in terms of options. Went to another one, same experience. And I'm like, you know what? Golf used to be exciting. 
golf used to be a place where people could be originals, where they could be creative, where their personalities like flared out there on the course. It has become, you know, people are just walking billboards for corporations and insurance companies. And, you know, it's gray and khaki and Navy and repeat. And it's just, there was a lane to be filled and I saw it right away. So we started bogey boys. We designed for probably over a year, launched in February of 2020. And um, it's been fantastic. I was pleasantly surprised at this hunch that there was like a golfer that was like me or, or an individual like me that wanted to be stylish on the golf course, like, and not look like everyone else that that golfer did exist. And, um, you know, it's been a series of triumphs of learning lessons of frustration of, you know, excitement and overall just a lot of work running a clothing company. Yeah. I think it's like I told you when I visited your stores, like you could have picked something easier to do in your leisure time. But, uh, I, I I must tell you that, um, I'm really impressed with your approach there and there is a real, authenticity to what's going on with that line. And I remember because it wasn't me talking to our buyers like, hey, I know this guy, Ben, we should carry his line. So they they came to me and they were talking about it. It's like, do you know him? Can we can we get this line? Like, this is a thing. We want to try it. And I don't know, that, that, that should make you super proud because it happened for all the right reasons and in all the right ways. I mean, obviously there's, at least in this town especially, I guess there's some celebrity attached to it. But it's not your name on there. It's not the Macklemore brand. It's Bogey Boys, and it's got to stand on its own. It's got to, you know, and it has, and it does. So I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm really impressed with your approach there and your focus on being able to do something not as a vanity ego project, but as something that you know you, you're, you're taking seriously. No, I, I, that means a lot coming from you, Pete. And yeah, it's um, you're exactly right. It's got to stand on its own, and that's been an issue. And we're and we're learning how to. You know, you have an idea of what's going to sell and you're like, well, this pattern sold, you know, at this time. And then you do something that's similar and you're like, oh, that didn't work at all. Or this color worked before. And, you know, now no one's buying seafoam and whatever it is. <laughs> it's a crazy puzzle yes. to be working. And it's so much deeper, I think, than what I anticipated coming from a world of selling Macklemore merch. But you know, it was just met with enthusiasm. And I think, you know, like Nordstrom's like wanting to carry it. That was a really big moment for us. And we were able to do a lot of really cool, like stuff around the activation and, you know, the team at Nordstrom is so dope and really like a lot of those guys that you guys have Thanks. on the squad. And they're just, um, they get it, yeah. they get it. And I think that, that Nordstrom's got it as, as a company and it did really well. That was one of those times for us that was pivotal of like, okay, now can we be in, you know, Nordstrom's? Can we be in a brick and mortar Nordstrom's and how is that going to sell? And it did surprisingly great. Yeah, no, I know the sell-throughs were good. I mean, you you must have learned some merchandising tricks over the years selling merch at shows or something because you, you're good at that. Appreciate it. So, Ben, you know, like I asked you at the top of the show, it's like, hey, you know, are we going by Macmore or Ben here, you know, I, I know you as Ben and everything is, do those two personas exist as different personas or is it all the same thing, whether it's Ben Haggerty or it's Macklemore? There's some difference. I think that there's a, I think there's a difference. I, I, I would like to say that they're the exact same. I think that they're mostly the same. I think as Macklemore, which feels weird to talk about myself in the third person, but like <laughs> as, as Macklemore, like, yeah, there's a difference of being out in public 
And like, I don't change up. I'm not, I don't feel like I have to, you know, be at a hundred percent all the time. Like I am who I am. I'm comfortable with who I am, but I also, you know, in certain situations going out in social settings, like I have to turn up naturally due to like being a public person, you know, the other night I went to the Joe Coy show at the Tacoma Dome and, you know, I'm backstage and like, I have to like shake everyone's hand and turn, you know, turn up just a little bit from my natural, like a level of being <laughs> or lack thereof. Um, but yeah, so, so there is a difference there, but in terms of like, what's getting written down, what's making it in the songs like that comes from my experience. I'm not writing as Macklemore. I'm writing as Ben Haggerty. I'm writing as someone that, gets to work on melodies and lyrics come. And, you know, I put that onto the page and I document this experience of being a human and, and I go on to the next one. I'm not looking at myself from like a different, like this is Macklemore, this has been for the most part. It's just, it's all one. Well, I mean, for what it's worth, I think that authenticity is what's given you longevity. Cause you know, it feels like a lot of what you're doing is your deal. I mean, do you personally write those melodies and those hooks and stuff like that? I mean, it's almost more of a pop song approach. In terms of the hooks, I can't sing. So I can write hooks and I do write hooks. So when you write them, are, are you like doing it on a piano or something? So you hit the melody? No, or I, mean, how I, you doing it? I write the words and I like try my best to get the melody that's in my head out, uh -huh. but I can never sing it. So yeah, a lot of the hooks that end up, you know, that we use are lyrics that I'm writing, but it, it's always a collaboration, right? I am definitely in the studio, guiding, writing, trying, throwing out ideas. I want the best performance from every little part of it. I mean, by nature, I'm a producer. Right. So I produce, you know, my first couple albums and then eventually just like realize like, oh, other people are way better at this than me, but I can still speak the language and I can communicate ideas. So everything that Ryan and I ever did, we did together in terms of the production of a song. Yeah. And it's also, it's another interesting thing about the whole rap world that, you know, not unique to you, but I mean, I was looking at all these songs that you have and how many of them have some kind of collaboration and it's a ton. I mean, that's gotta be a heck of a lot of work that those ideas germinate with you, but then you've got to bring in these other people. I mean, do you bring them in so they can help flesh it out? Or you're like, Hey, look at, this is your part. I just want you to do this part. Are, are these people bringing in their ideas too and contributing to the song in its formation? Not exactly like, you know, they're not going to sit there and structure the song with me. But I mean, I think hip hop in particular, it's a genre where, you know, collaboration is, is always been a part of the albums that we get. You know, we get Notorious Big and Method Man on Ready to Die. Like we, we have these collaborations yeah. that mean something to the culture. And, and it's fun. You know, I think that if you're listening to any album and any one voice for a long period of time, it's like, it's nice to have guests come in, particularly, you know, again, for the hooks for me, like I want to write records that hit their full potential. I, you know, even for something that I'm like, you know, even if I could maybe sing it, or even if it's a more, you know, rap type of hook that I could do, I still want them to hit their full potential in terms of what this song could be. And that's in collaboration with others. Yeah. I mean, you've had a lot of great songs. I was going through, got down the rabbit hole, listening to a bunch of your music 
yesterday and uh and even your most recent releases and i know you can make this plug you got a brand new album that's coming out uh march march anyway i just want to say congratulations i mean it's great i mean it's you don't strike me as a guy that's lost his muse at all i mean that authenticity and that storytelling and that the entertainment value of what you do is high i mean it's good i appreciate it pete you know as long as as long as there's something to say, as long as I'm enjoying the process, like I, I want to keep making art. And, um, you know, I think that this album, it's on par with anything else that I've ever made. And I think that, you know, it's just a different chapter of life. It's a different time to tell some more stories and work on something that gets to be introduced to the lives and hearts of the people. Like that's an amazing experience to be able to like be in another season of that, where you know that the new music is going to now get introduced to the world and take on a, a life of its own. Yeah. Hey, look, thanks so much for doing this. You're, you're a good guy, Ben, honestly. And um, I'm, I'm glad I got a chance again to know you a little bit better through this interview. And I look forward to seeing you around and, and I wish you all the best. You know, you got that album out there. I'm sure you're going to be out on the road a lot working it. So best of luck to you. Thank you, Pete. I really appreciate it. Great conversation. Thank you for having me on, man. Well, that's the show. We're really glad you're with us on this journey, and we hope that you keep listening. The easiest way to do that is to subscribe to The Nordy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please take a minute to give us a like, a share, and a review so other people can find this thing too. For more information about the show, head to Nordstrom.com slash Nordy Podcast, where you can listen to episodes, see upcoming guests, and learn about how to get involved. We really want to hear about your experience with Nordstrom. So if you have a story about how you receive great service or even bad service, send us an email to nordypodcast at nordstrom.com. You can also give us a call and leave a voicemail, and you just might hear your voice on a future episode of the show. That number is 206-594-0526. So don't be shy, drop us a line and be part of the Nordy Pod. And make sure to tune in next time when I sit down with a fashion and beauty power couple, the founders of Westman Atelier, Gucci Westman and David Neville. We don't allow a lot of ingredients and it's been a really challenging experience, especially when we started, when the formulators are really familiar with how the ingredients that they've been using for years work and it's a science, so it's complicated. And I would not compromise on what I wanted in terms of texture and finish and performance. You know, now there are more ingredients available, but there's other problems present themselves. It's kind of, how are they sourced? There's always some like, twist so it's really so if you'd like tough rewind again to the moment where gucci kind of said you know she wanted her brand to be this marriage of luxury and natural i can honestly say that we didn't do it as a commercial exercise from day one it was more about can we create something that really represented gucci and her taste her philosophy and sort of crystallize that into a brand focused on the product itself and creating something beautiful that we could be proud of and can one day show our grandkids and say we did this don't miss this fascinating look into a relatively new beauty brand from renowned celebrity makeup artist gucci westman and her husband david neville a super successful fashion entrepreneur in his own right 
Together, they've committed to the incredibly difficult task of producing 100% all-natural and ethically sourced beauty products that stand up to the biggest beauty brands in the business. You're really going to enjoy listening to the formation of their mission and the incredible resolve of Westman Atelier. Next time on The Nordy Pod.